Hello and welcome to another episode of the County Cricket Podcast in association with our friends at Bear Cricket. I'm your host, Aaron, aka the Cricket Connoisseur, and joining me on my left for today's County Championship review show is everyone's favourite Yorkshire-supporting, Nottinghamshire-based communications intern, Mr Matt Wiley. So Matt, first things first, mate, thank you very much for coming back onto the show. Always a pleasure and a privilege to chat all things county cricket with yourself, mate. I have to ask, how's your day been so far? Yeah, well, good, thanks, mate. Yeah, yeah looking forward to, uh, what are we on now, round 13, round 14. It's, uh, I'm losing count, but uh, no, so it's, it's always, always really good. And uh, yeah, we've, we've got plenty to discuss, I think, haven't we? Well, we have indeed, Matt. So, yeah, the 13th round has been quite sensational, to be honest, in particular in Division 1. The title race, as we'll discuss in due course, really is heating up towards the business end of the season here in Super September. But all sorts going on, lots of individual milestones, lots of individual knocks and moments of brilliance. It's It's been yet another fascinating round of county championship cricket, and we really are in for an excellent conclusion to both divisions heading into the rest of this month's games. But we'll start first and foremost with Division 1 and talking of the title race. What better place to start than down on the south coast, where Hampshire beat Northants by an innings and four runs in an instant county championship classic at the Aegeus Bowl. Now, to give some background and context to this particular game, Northamptonshire won the toss and elected to have a bowl first in this game. This decision appeared to have paid off quite nicely during the early exchanges, as the ever-reliable seam duo of Ben Sanderson and Jack White restricted the home side to a score of 167 for five within the first 50 overs of the innings. After this promising start, though, the remainder of this first innings on the south coast belongs well and truly to Hampshire, as the swashbuckling and Nyrin Donald engineered a stylish 94 from 84 deliveries, alongside the likes of Kyle Abbott, who played a magnificent 57 out, and James Fuller, who chipped in with a useful 26, to ultimately propel the hosts up to a commanding total of 400 for nine declared by the end of their first innings. Now, Matt, before we get into Hampshire's bowling, which, let's be honest, has been a common theme, a common occurrence here on the podcast. It seems we bring them up every single week, and we will in due course. Just a few words on that knock from Anaya Donald, in particular in terms of the, the vitalness, the importance of this particular innings. Hampshire were pretty much struggling at this point. Sanderson and White were causing all sorts of issues for that Hampshire top order. And Anairin, who, as we all know, he's come back from those two horrible ACL injuries, comes in, takes the attack to the North Ants bowlers, and he did a phenomenal job, didn't he? Really did, yeah. And I think it's, I think this whole, this idea that sort of um, basketball might be seeping into county cricket, it's just another example of that, isn't it? It's that willingness to take on the attack and be proactive and, you know, the, the situation is, is there to be read in that way and, you know, to go out and take it on. And and he did do that so well. And ultimately, you know, we've mentioned kind of the importance of bonus points in the past and, you know, people kind of think, oh, it's, you know, you get 16 points for a win. How can one or two really make a difference? But we've seen it repeatedly over quite a number of years. You know, one or two points can make the difference at both ends of the table. So to kind of, you know, say, right, well, we've only really can play one way here. And that is, we've got to get the runs as we can. And it wouldn't have helped him to, and it wouldn't have helped Hampshire to, you know, gently plod along because you could get at any point, you could get an unplayable delivery and he's gone and, you know, it's a completely different match. So to 
sees the initiative, I think is something that we like to see. And it, it's good that he did that. And, you know, ultimately it did pay dividends, didn't it? Because in more ways than one, it got them to the bonus points, maximum bonus points that they really could need in what turned out to be a tight title race. And also it enabled them to go past the point where they were able to then bowl Northampton throughout twice in what was a rain-affected and, you know, time-sensitive game as well. So it was just, yeah, it was important in that innings and then in the wider context of the game and who knows, maybe even in the title race the whole season. Well, well, that's the thing to take away from this particular game. And of course, that knock from Anora Donald. We'll get into the bowling in just a second. But this could be the game that determines the title race. This could be the moment, which is the catalyst for Hampshire's first county championship title since 1973. So it really is massive. We cannot overstate the importance of this particular victory for the Southern County in the wider context of this year's county championship. And Talking of the bowling mats, because we have to, when it comes to Hampshire, every single game, they just seem to dominate on home soil. They've lost one game across four mats since the middle of June. They look unstoppable. It is this immovable freight train at the moment that they've got down in Hampshire. And Kyle Abbott in that first Northamptonshire innings taking four for 52. Keith Barker taking three for 51. They bowl Northants out within just 64 overs for a total of 175 runs. Bear in mind that it's raining, you've got all of this cloud cover, it's it's a stop-start game. That's the thing to remember from this particular encounter. And yet they bowled brilliantly well. But then in the second innings, it's interesting, because after that outstanding bowling display from the Hampshire Seamers in that first innings, Northants actually got off to a fantastic start to their second innings with the follow-on. Emilio Gay, who's an incredibly impressive prospect, I've got a lot of time for Emilio Gay, really did start to halt the Hampshire momentum as he produced a counter-attacking 74, which saw Northamptonshire propel themselves up to a promising score of 98 for none within the first 26 overs of the second innings. However, this was the moment that things started to turn yet again, and it came from the most unlikely source, someone who we don't actually talk often about here on the podcast when it comes to that same battery. But Ian Holland dismissing Will Young with a jaffer. It was a beautiful delivery. Northants all of a sudden 98 for one. And after that moment, Hampshire's bowlers just clicked. And from 98 for one, Northants all of a sudden, by the 68th over, found themselves teetering on a truly perilous score of 218 for nine. And this is where we pick up our story. It's wet. It's windy. There is an almost apocalyptic amount of cloud approaching the Aegeus Bowl. It's gloomy. The lights are just about to come on. The heavens are bound to open any second. You've got James Fuller bowling to Jack White. With that rain inching ever closer, James Fuller clean bowls Jack White with an absolute ripper to spark wild scenes of celebration, jubilance, euphoria and ecstasy amongst the Hampshire fans who had made the journey to the Aegeus Bowl. Matt, if you could try and summarise those final few events that we witnessed down in Southampton this week, how would you go about doing so? What a moment it was as well for those Hampshire fans, and big respect to each and every single one of them who made the journey in those conditions. It was incredibly wet, wasn't it? Yeah, it really really was incredibly impressive, mate, actually, yeah. And I think 
the whole kind of everyone coming together to summarise that final day, you know, the ground staff coming together, the fans being there to support. And of course, I mean, you did see an Aaron Donald at one point brushing water off himself. You know, that's how desperate they were to get it on. And I think that kind of showed how crucial, you know, this this win was for Hampshire. And I mean, you saw it in the celebrations at the end, you know, the absolute just unleash of sheer joy when uh, when full of bold white. And yeah, it's, you know, the whole team coming together. And I think that's kind of what, that that's that's it really and it, that that is a microcosm of what it meant because just the sheer importance of that victory you can't really understate it it put them at the top of the table it's put the pressure back on story you know they've they've won that with maximum points and that's exactly what you need it started i think with the dismissal of gay late on on the third day i think that was kind of the, the obviously you know you've got the key moment of the win but i just think that that moment of getting rid of Gay because if he had been allowed to kind of frustrate the bowling attack throughout maybe some of the fourth days play as well, and what we did see the fourth days play, then that might you know the game might have ended a little bit differently. But it's just it just underlines the importance of building that pressure and taking those key wickets at that time because obviously you know as you saw, Hampshire pretty much then went rampant, didn't they? They, they unleashed. They, they skittled Northamptonshire essentially, you know, it was 150 plus for two, that made it 153 for three, and suddenly they're all out for, you know, less than 30, 40 runs at it. So that's kind of what, that was the key moment. And then, yeah, you know, that, that just, that, that just high, that whole idea of people just coming together to get the, get the game on, get the game won, and, you know, ultimately set things up for, what looks like a very, very good final couple of rounds. Well, it most certainly does, and there is just something inherently likeable about this Hampshire team, isn't there? You mentioned about Anarin Donald joining the ground staff, sweeping up water and trying to get play on, and then those scenes of celebration were brilliant. I mean, I saw a screenshot on Twitter, and it just belongs in an art gallery. It really does. I'd put that in the National Gallery for everybody to enjoy. It's just a brilliant scene of euphoria and and human emotion just being conveyed so perfectly. But in terms of North Ants, aside from Hampshire, who we have given a lot of time to in this segment, Matt, they're not going to go down, are they? Let's be completely honest. Even though they'll be bitterly disappointed, realistically, they could have probably batted a bit better on that final day. They could have shown a little bit more resilience. But for North Ants, mid-table, and the most important thing for the East Midlands County, really, is the fact that they've survived, haven't they, heading into this season? A lot of people myself included, to be honest, at the start of the season, were worried that North Ants might actually get relegated. But I think they've surpassed expectations. The likes of Luke Proctor, the likes of Rob Keogh, Josh Cobb have been excellent. Ricardo Vasconcelos, they need him to find some form. But again, he's someone else who looks incredibly promising for the future. Emilio Gay's had quite the promising campaign as well. In terms of North Ants, they will be disappointed about this defeat, but it's been a decent season, hasn't it? Yeah, I think they'll be happy with how they've got on this season, to be honest. I think when you consider who they've lost to in this particular encounter, yes, they're a professional sports team. Any professional sports team will be disappointed to lose any game. Of course they will. But, you know, when you consider their position and their budget and their where they are as a team versus where Hampshire are, you know, a title chase in one of the richest teams in the country, that, you know, you have to take that into account. And... You know, they gave a decent enough account of themselves. Players, some players gave a decent enough account of themselves. 
And, you know, you're going to lose games. It's going to happen. It's the top level of professional domestic cricket in this country. But for them to be where they are at this stage of the season, ahead of counties like Yorkshire, like Warwickshire, they go on equally, uh, we're, we're both equally below Northamptonshire there. It's, you know, it, it's a really impressive achievement. And when you take into account what their target would have been at the start of the season, they've surpassed it. It's simple as that. As long as you set your target right and, you know, they're challenging but achievable, that was a challenging but achievable target for Northamptonshire. And I think really, barring any colossally late collapse and events really conspiring against them in the final couple of weeks of the season, they should be all right and they can be proud of that. Yeah, I'd agree, to be honest, Matt. I don't think they'll be tremendously satisfied, obviously, because... You know, they are professional sports people. They want to achieve success, you know, trophies and stuff. I think that would have been a little bit out of their reach in this particular season. But I think a mid-table finish for North Ants is more than respectable. And as I said, yes, no one likes a defeat, but Hampshire are incredible at home. And yeah, there is a reason why they are in the mix for this year's title, as we'll discuss when we get to the tables. But aside from that game, that incredible encounter on the South Coast then, Let's move slightly further east. Let's go to Canterbury, where Essex absolutely annihilated Kent by an innings and 260 runs at the Spitfire ground. Now, Kent won the toss and elected to have a bowl first in this game. And Matt, that is immediately where I want to pick up. What did you make of that decision? Because earlier on in the season, Essex piled on the runs for fun against Kent when they bowled in that first innings and they did it again in this game. Were you in favour of that decision? Strange, I think you have to say. Yeah, it, it, it didn't seem like the wisest call, did it? Especially when you consider that we go back to earlier this season when Kent were bowling to people who were just essentially racking up 450, 500 to form against them. And when they, they thought like they might have maybe placated those problems a little bit in mid-season um, with the signings of people like Matt Henry, but then he's not there anymore. So they're essentially back to that kind of old bowling attack that struggled. And yes, I mean, you know, I, I, I'll be honest, I didn't see the pitch, I didn't see the conditions. There might have been a little bit of influence about that. And, you know, you, you want to back yourself. You know, you want to say, right, well, we think we've solved the issues or gone some way to solving the issues that plagued us earlier in the season. And Essex, you know, put up the runs massively against us last time. So we want to prove to ourselves and to them that they're not going to be allowed to do that anymore. I can understand that, you know, that kind of drive. But yeah, I just think you do, you know, analysts exist in cricket for a reason. And, you know, the data exists in all sport. It, it does exist. It is there for a reason. It does provide a bit of guidance, a bit of helping hand. And I think, to be honest, it was a little bit of a, yeah, a bit of a foolhardy decision, really. And, you know, hindsight is a wonderful thing. We can sit here and, you know, Essex got what they got. And maybe if Essex had been bowled out for 150, obviously we wouldn't be having this conversation. But they did. And we are. And I think, yeah, that Kent bowling attack still needs a little bit of work and a bit of a pep talk really now, doesn't it? It, it most certainly does. And we'll talk about Kent's bowling and, in fact, their batting in due course. But you mentioned about Essex. They certainly weren't bowled out for 150. In fact, the, the southeastern county racked up 573 runs over the course of 160 overs in that first innings. Sir Alistair Cook scoring 78 
to bring up his 119th career half century in first class cricket. The man's a legend. We don't need to analyse too much into the greatness of Sir Alistair Cook, but goodness me, 119 times raising the bat. I'm surprised he's still got arms left. Might be absolutely exhausted by that point. But talking of someone else who not only lifted the bat, but also had the privilege of taking off his helmet in celebration this week to bring up his first ever century in first-class cricket was Pharaoh's Kushi. And Matt, I just want to take a deeper dive into this particular knock, if I may. In terms of this particular performance, 164 from 228 balls, 18 fours, two sixes, striking at 71.9 in first-class cricket. And some of the shots that he was producing, he's got a lovely, stylish, elegant, majestic flick off the pads, which just looks so resplendent. I can't even begin to to materialise the words which give it justice. He's a very stylish and and pleasing on the eye kind of batter. In terms of this knock, Matt, what did you make of it? And in terms of of Kushi as, as a prospect... What do you see his ceiling being like heading into the next few years? Because we've seen some glimpses of promise. I think back to the 2020 Bob Willis Trophy. That was the tournament where he really kind of kicked on in an Essex shirt in the first place. But to produce that performance against Essex's historic rivals in the Battle of the Bridge, it was quite sensational, wasn't it? Yeah, it really was. And I think, you know, we talk about this kind of idea of maturity beyond your years. And I think you do have to show that quite a lot in cricket. Um, because of the kind of individual battles that you have to go through. You know, you have to stand up to each individual bowler and you maybe, you know, there might be a bit of chirping coming off you from the fielders. And, you know, you, you essentially, when you're out there, I know, I know you're out there with a batting partner, but when you're um, at, the, at the striker's end ready to face the ball, you know, you're 20 yards away from him, 22 yards away from him, I should say. And on your own, essentially, you have to dominate. And if you're going to go on and, dominate the bowling attack yourself and make it your own but he did that really well and I think like you said he was really classy he was really confident he scored a lot of his runs through the covers which you know is requires a hell of a lot of class you know it's a really nice exemplary shot isn't it um, not afraid to throw his arms when he wanted to you know there's a couple of sixes in there which just kind of summed up you know this kind of if the ball is there to be hit hit it and which is what I really like I'd like to see a lot of that and you know, it's good that players are showing that. And just the way he kind of scored all around the ground, there was no way that there was nowhere that really kind of escaped it almost. It's just that. And that is what kind of helps you to dominate the field and dominate the bowling. Like, you know, it's kind of saying that you're always one step ahead of the fielding captain and whatever he does, you've got a response to that. And that's kind of, that's the most important thing when you're looking to win that sort of mental basketball if the fielding captain thinks, oh, right, well, this will work, I've got him, and then you kind of essentially show that it has got you, you know, you, you start struggling to score runs through a certain area of the field or a certain bowler, you know, beats the bat a few times, that's when the doubt can start to creep in and the fielder's morale can go up. But if you're there scoring all over the ground, showing that whatever he's throwing at you, you're repelling, then it's them, it's the fielding side that will get demoralised, the bowling side that will get demoralised. And that's what's so important in an innings like that. And it allows you to score freely and take the initiative. And for him to do that at the age of 23 is, yeah, very special. And you mentioned his ceiling. I think it's very, very high. I think it's, you know, we've seen quite a few come out of the Essex Academy 
in recent years, haven't we? Um, I'm sure there's, there's a bowler, in fact, that I'm sure we're going to get onto in just a second. Um, but, you know, he's just the latest example of that. And I think, to be honest, long may it continue. Completely echo that sentiment. Long may it continue. And I agree, has got a very high ceiling. If I am being extremely critical, though, just one thing that I have noticed with, for us, is, is technique, really, is the front pad. It is very exposed. And I'm not sure if you've looked too much into it, but I've actually been watching quite a lot of the innings back. It's a very exaggerated front foot movement. And against domestic bowlers who aren't bowling at 90 mile an hour plus, he'll be okay. I do just worry against quicker bowlers, though. LBW might come into effect potentially in the future. That is just my two cents on that, to be honest. But in terms of his shot selection... In terms of, again, the aesthetically pleasing nature of his batting, he's great to watch. He really is, and hopefully this is the first century of many for Feroz Kushi. I really like him as a prospect. Comes across as a good lad, got good character, good attitude as well. And yeah, hopefully, as I said, he can use this to kick on and, who knows, maybe score a couple of centuries to end off this season as well. And in terms of some other impressive performances from Essex this week, Matt Critchley. Now, I've got an awful lot of time for Matt Critchley. I think he's a fantastic all-rounder, very underrated in my opinion. He chipped in with an excellent 90. I was gutted that he couldn't bring up the three figures. And then someone else, who I must say, I was not expecting this from at all this week, even though he has got a first-class 50 in his career before, Ben Allison. 53 from 114 deliveries, which included six boundaries. That was a pretty good knock, wasn't it, from the Essex number nine? It really was, yeah. And, you know, I've, I've, I've said this before, the, the importance of KL Enders to be able to chip in with some runs is always incredibly valuable, um, not least because, you know, the field inside have got their tails up. They think, oh, well, you know, we're getting into the tail. And then all of a sudden, he's the one who's smashing them back all over the place. So, yeah, the, the ability of him to do that was really impressive. I think by that point, you know, it was just about for, um, for Essex amassing as many as they possibly could to ensure that they'd then be able to bowl Kent out twice without having to bat again themselves. You know, bonus points were already long since secured or, you know, the 110 overs long since passed. But, yeah, really impressive. Um, and I think just that... I know he had a lot of support from Kushi. Um, I think Kushi was ninth man out, Kushi, wasn't he? I think he didn't quite make it to the end, but still got that support. And, you know, did that partnership there. It's just, yeah, everything seemed to click for Essex and didn't for Kent, really. Well, no, it didn't. And in response to that mammoth 573 from the visitors, Kent was skittled out for 164 runs within just 50.2 overs. The aforementioned Allison, funnily enough, taking four for 40 from his 12 overs. And then the main man in question for this week from an Essex perspective with the ball in hand, Matt, you have alluded to him. The, the person who Essex's admin on social media has nicknamed the arch nemesis of Canterbury, a certain Sam Cook. He took a 10 for in this game, taking three for 27 in that first innings and then seven for 33 from 19 overs in the second innings. Now, if we just look at the records, not only from this season, but also from a wider career, I just wanted to read out Sam Cook's stats, if I may. He's played 56 matches in first-class cricket. He's taken 198 wickets and he's got an average of 19.7. Now, I'm pretty sure we've had this conversation on the podcast before, Matt, but Sam Cook for England, perhaps? That's an interesting one. Um, mm. I mean, I see no obvious reason why not. 
Um, I think if it happens, it's more likely to happen in the limited overs arena. But I think, to be honest, yeah, I see no reason why not. He's clearly shown his skills repeatedly. I think it's a little bit almost odd in the sense that if you'd asked me this question maybe two or three years ago and you said which one out of Jamie Porter or Sam Cook is going to get an England call first, I definitely would have said Porter. But, you know, he's the one that they, they, they kind of broke through at similar times, didn't they, around that the time that Essex had that success with winning the championship. But I think, yeah, he's done it at the county level for a couple of two or three years, three or four years now. And it's almost, if this is, you know, the pathway to test cricket, if this is the arena in which you have to prove yourself in order to get an England call, well, then he's done that. So, you know, what, what else is before him? I think maybe there's people who they might be more willing to try for a little bit longer. And, you know, uh, they, they might want to see Matt Potts for a little bit. Um, and there is also kind of the, the fact that our winter tour this year is, um, is to Pakistan, where, you know, you're not really going to be trying too many new pace bowlers because it's fairly inevitable that they will struggle. You know, you'll want to try out your spinners there. But, you know, yeah, if there's a, a series coming up, Although, to be fair, we have got New Zealand, you know, who knows there, that, that's in February, that might be worth a shot. Um, yeah, I think, to be honest, I see no reason why not, but I might be a little bit surprised if it happens, maybe before. We might be talking about it this time next year. I think that's a fair assessment. I do think at the moment, given the emergence of Matt Potts, Ollie Robinson as well, coming back into the fold, it, it might not be just yet. But I think in the future, I just really like Sam Cook's bowling. And he's got this incredibly potent and lethal in-swinger. He swings it both ways. He always gets wickets. And, you know, he's played nine games for Essex in this year's county championship. He's taken 36 wickets at an average of 16.75. So Sam Cook, little chef, as he's also known, definitely someone to watch out for heading into the future. But talking of the immediate future, now let's talk about Kemp Matt's. Because this was an absolute shocker. There's no way to sugarcoat it. We can't just simply gloss over the fact that Kent had a shocker on home soil this week with both the bats and the ball in hand. Now, we mentioned their bowling struggles an awful lot. But this week, I've got to say the batting was just as bad. It really was. When you think that Kent were 10 points above Warwickshire before this game was played, they are now just 11 points above them. And Warwickshire are now the team with the game in hand. They scored one point from this entire game on home soil. In terms of the wider relegation battle, Matt, Kent are really back into the thick of it, aren't they? As a result of this, if they could have batted it out and maybe secured some draw points or even a couple of extra bonus points, they'd fancy their chances of staying up. When you look at the remainder of their season, aside from the one-day cup final, they've got Hampshire away and then Somerset at home on the last game of the season, it's a tremendously difficult end and conclusion to their campaign. Are you worried about Kent's survival chances now off the back of this performance? Yeah, I am. I really am. Um, I think that they we're starting to obviously see the kind of the, the two. The, it's very clear where the two battles kind of you know where where the where the top where the title race is where the middle of the table is and then where the relegation places you know the the teams that are going to be involved in that and i think there's enough of a gap i mean i'm saying this with fingers crossed but i think there's enough of a gap now between kent and yorkshire that yorkshire will be okay in six 
I think it's those bottom four and the fact that Kent are now being sucked back into it. And like you said, um, Somerset and Warwickshire have both got games in hand. Even a draw with a few bonus points in those for, for both of those would be enough to take them ahead of, you know, it, it, it's really, really tense. And, you know, the only other team in that bottom four to have played the same, to have played 12, is Gloucestershire, who I think, you know, in all honesty, you might have to say, you know, it's, it's not confirmed yet, is it? But in all honesty, you might have to say that uh, their relegation is more or less a formality when it comes. But yeah, they, they are really in trouble. You know, they've only won twice. Um, in fact, as well, you know, I'm talking about Gloucestershire, they've only lost four games. Kent have lost five. You know, you can't be losing more games than bottom of the table and expect to survive comfortably. So, yeah, I think that battle with Somerset, um, I mean, Hampshire, you know, you said Hampshire, that, that that will be incredibly tough. That'll make it life even more difficult. But I think that battle with Somerset um, in the final game of the season, stand by, because that's going to be, that could easily decide. I mean, you know, we'll see what happens with Warwickshire, obviously, but that could easily decide who's going to go down alongside Gloucestershire. I think it's, yeah, can uh, really, it, it, and as well, I, just, I suppose I should just tack on to the end, it's a really bad time of the season to be beaten that badly. You know, if you've been beaten that badly at the start of the season, there's a lot of time to sort it out. None of that luxury at the moment. You know, you're straight back into it and you're fighting for survival against the team that are fighting for the title. So, yeah, it's, it's going to be very, very difficult. It will indeed. And again, it's just all self-inflicted. And I do just look at this Kent side. I do feel some sympathy because on paper they should be a lot better. But at the same time, to, to produce that performance, this is Essex's largest ever win over Kent. To produce that performance at this time of the season, it is a shocker. And they have just brought themselves back. I mean, they were, they were all but clear. If they would have got an extra eight points from this game, I would fancy their chances to stay up because then this next game between Warwickshire and Somerset Edgebaston becomes a must-win for one of those counties. Now all they have to do is draw. And as you said, get some bonus points. 12 points puts Warwickshire clear of Kent heading into those final two games. So bitterly disappointed with Kent this week. You can probably tell by the tone of my voice. I just could not believe that they produced that performance on this week of every single week. You know, just not good enough. And they need to make some changes. The fact that Darren Stevens isn't playing I don't know why Joey Everson's not in the team either. This team has not been performing all season long, and yet there's just this continuation of the same old, same old. They've got to make changes, and they've got to produce a performance against Hampshire if they are to stay up in the 2022 County Championship. But talking of that relegation battle then, Mats, let's head over to the West Country, where Somerset and Gloucestershire played out a draw in the side of Derby at the Cooper Associates County Ground in Taunton. Now, Somerset won the toss and elected to have a bowl first on what seemed to be a very flat wicket on home soil. So, Matt, first and foremost, again, this has been quite the theme in today's podcast, but what were your thoughts on that particular decision? Yeah, a bit of a weird one. Um, I think, you know, you obviously back, um, you back, you back the home team to know their conditions and, um, to, you know, they will have prepared the wicket and they will have had that in mind etc uh but yeah a little, little bit of little bit of a strange one i think really it's not it didn't really turn out to be what you'd describe as a vintage bowling performance did it you know gloucestershire getting three bonus points and essentially you know when, when you start in your innings more than 300 behind that's always considered I think 300 is the you know the benchmark isn't it you're starting more than 300 behind you're considered to be uh, 
up again. Yeah. Um, I mean, there were, you know, fairly okay performances. I mean, especially Lewis Gregory um, coming back into Somerset Colours for uh, what the first time in a uh, little over a month and taking four wickets. And, you know, he knows the conditions there. And Josh Davy as well, another one who knows the conditions. But, yeah, it, it wasn't quite as catastrophic as obviously uh, Kent winning the toss and watching Essex pile up 573. But it was. It, it, it was a bit odd, and um, I think, you know, you get the sense that Taunton is a bat-first ground, you know, it's a small ground, you want to put runs on the board. So, yeah, a, a bit of a strange one, I think, from my point of view. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think it was very reminiscent of, of Warwickshire's decision to bowl first at the same venue back all the way in April, to be honest. Uh, I was a bit surprised. I thought Somerset would have, have had a bat-first in particular, given the emergence and the arrival of Imam al-Haq, who we'll get onto in due course, he batted very nicely in this particular game. But talking of another overseas player who just dominated this particular fixture, Marcus Harris, in his final game for the West Country outfit in 2022, racking up a superb 159 from 263 deliveries, which included 17 fours and a six. That was a vintage knock from the Victorian this week. So, had to give Marcus Harris a lot of plaudits. I thought he batted very nicely indeed, as did Ollie Price at number three. And we talk about prospects and we talk about the future of cricket in Gloucestershire and Gloucestershire County Cricket Club. Ollie Price and Tom Price, two brothers to watch out for heading into the future, both incredibly impressive in this particular game. Ollie Price scoring 52 in that first innings. And then in Somerset's innings, Tom Price taking 5 for 75. I've got a lot of time for those two. Very raw prospects at the moment, but both very energetic cricketers, both very passionate and both very skilled, it has to be said. So Gloucestershire fans, watch out for those two heading into the future. But aside from Gloucestershire's batting then, let's have a look at Somerset's batting in that first inning. So Gloucestershire had racked up 343 runs on what I said was a relatively flat pitch. And in response... I've got to say Somerset a little bit underwhelming with the bats for the most part. 248 all out by the end of their first innings. But two players in particular stood out like absolute beacons for the home side at the CACG this week. And they were Imamal Hack, the debutant who scored 90 from 162 balls. And James Rue. James Rue talking to prospects and talking to people with incredibly high ceilings. James Rue, the former England under-19 player. Looks like a real talent. He really does. He scored 44 not out from 168 balls, striking at 26.19. Proper gritty, over-my-dead-body kind of batting. In terms of those two performances, Matt, what did you make of Somerset's batting overall? But in particular, the knocks from Imamal Hack and James Rue. They were quite impressive for Somerset this week, weren't they? They were, yeah. And I think <clears throat> they were uh, kind of contrasting at certain times, but also at the same time, you know, they, they did what they set out to do and they achieved their intentions. And, you know, that's that's what you want. You want players that will go out there and nail their skills and, you know, pretty much essentially in, in red ball when it's required. I know I've, you know, literally just said 10 minutes ago, I like I quite like to see a bit more of taking on the initiative and, and taking the attack to the bowlers. But when it's required, digging in and making sure that, you know, you, you do prize your wickets. And I think... If we are going to, if we are going to, you know, there, there seems to be a bit of a dearth of batters, especially young batters, that will 
you know, really dig in. You know, a lot of players that are coming through are making themselves out as white ball specialists and ones that, you know, really want to showcase everything that they've got. And I think, you know, I mean, I can name maybe Haseeb Hamid, who's 24. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, we've seen it from Rue there, but I'd, I'd be I'd be struggling really on the whole to name sort of batters maybe below the age of 26, 25, 26, who've come through and established themselves as proper Red Bull specialists. And I think quite a lot of the Red Bull specialists in this country at the moment are ones who have been around for so long that they essentially nailed this skill before the enormous, you know, gaping monster that is now white ball cricket. For a player to come through and show that they can do that, I think it gives a lot of confidence to the future of the of the, of the Red Bull game, and it, it makes you sort of think, oh, yeah, we, you know, these players with this patient temperament, they do still exist, and I think that's really quite a boost for the game, and you know, for him to put his, uh, like I said, nail his skills. Um, I mean, Imam will have a fine overseas import. We've seen his skills. You know, we, we know we know what he can do from the international stage. Yeah, James Rue, and which um, I talked about Essex is obviously Essex's academy producing well. Somerset's academy, you know, Somerset produced a lot of really good young players. Um, Ify Aldridge being another one who, who played in this game, you know, the list I could, I could sit here and name them for probably five, ten minutes solid, you know, the amount of talent that's come out of their academy recently. But yeah, so for him to go out there and just kind of dig in and allow people around him to score the runs and you know he was the calm and constant presence at one end it provides a lot of support and yeah he's done himself absolutely no hurt he's, he's not you know he's done himself a lot of favors um with his performance there in the red ball arena i think well he most certainly has and yeah as i said i was incredibly impressed with the two of them two contrasting innings in terms of of the approach i suppose imamul hack is the more experienced one as that former pakistan test player but Goodness me, really impressed with those two. It's a shame that the the rest of the batting didn't quite come to the forefront for Somerset this week. But talking of batting in particular, Matt, I think this is the, the big and final question from the side of Derby for this week. Gloucestershire's second innings, right, considering the, the wider context of the table, Gloucestershire needed to win this game. And there was an awful lot of, of questioning and you could argue even borderline controversy about Gloucestershire's approach to the batting in the second innings. They batted incredibly slowly, 279 for seven declared over the course of 96 overs. Now, don't get me wrong, I thought we saw some pretty good knocks from the likes of Ben Charlesworth, and again, Ollie Price also scored another 50 in that particular innings. But what did you make of Gloucestershire's decision not to go for it? Yes, I'm well aware that the weather forecast wasn't good, and I know hindsight's a fantastic thing, and to be honest, given the fact that day four was all but a washout, it might not have made much difference. But what did you make of the approach in particular on day three to just dig in, see out maiden over after maiden over? Could you see the logic behind that or were you a little bit disappointed with the way in which Gloucestershire approached that given the fact that they needed a win in order to essentially secure their their survival? Well, yeah, I think what obviously I've just said in the past sort of time that we've been on this podcast, mate, is that I like to see teams take that initiative and you know when when the opportunity is there and when the circumstances call for it be a bit more aggressive and be a bit more positive and you know to be honest Gloucestershire 
they didn't have anything to lose. You know, I know I know you can maybe make the argument well they had a cricket game to lose, but well, you know, they've lost a lot of those already. You know, they've at this point it's pretty much do or die for them really. You know, are they are they gonna go down fighting or are they gonna just go down with a bit of a whimper? And it's it, it is disappointing that they do seem to have chosen the latter. I think maybe this decision for me at worst was shying away from what could have been a really good um, you know, they could have set themselves up well. At best, it was naive. You know, maybe you could say they were thinking, right, well, we'll get themselves to a target and then we'll make some effect chase something without ever taking into account the weather forecast. Now, I totally refuse to believe that they've done that because, as I said, you know, analysts exist for a reason. And even, you know, even, even without an analyst, all it does is take, you know, the head coach to have a quick look at, on his phone and see what see what time the weather's arriving, see what time the rain's arriving. You know, it, it, it seemed... It, it, it was an odd call, it really was. And yeah, I think Somerset bowling, you know, obviously the Somerset bowlers, like I said, they know their conditions, they know where to put the ball and they know how to essentially put aside in the mud, you know, essentially sticky, make make them sticky and a little bit, you know, unsure of themselves. They know how to do that. It's their home ground. That's the same all over the country when you're playing at home, etc. But I wouldn't say that, you know, there will have been balls there to be hit. There will have been opportunities there to be taken. And I think that is, you know, they've, they've let themselves down there, really. They have. It's um, they, they they might have lost this individual game, but I think they would have gained a lot more respect if they'd gone for it. I know we've seen in the past teams have been criticised for attempting to contrive results. But, you know, this, was, this wasn't both teams attempting to, you know, bring, bring about a result. You know, there wasn't any sort of, negotiation going on where we think right well, we've got to get a result out of this game this would have been Gloucestershire going right we're going to be positive here we need points let's go and get them and to not do that disappointing I think yeah I would agree that in particular the fans will be incredibly disappointed I mean we do have to factor in the weather this was a bit of a stop start game and as I said day four was all but a washout in in reply Somerset only got to 11 runs in fact, in their second innings. But I just feel as though they could have upped the ante a little bit. And let's say they had gone for it and taken a few wickets in that evening session. If the rain hadn't arrived, they could have potentially won on day four. But again, it is just all theoretical. In the end, would it have made much difference? Probably not. But in terms of the overall game itself, in terms of that wider picture, which we continually go back to and address on the podcast, I think Somerset will be the happier of the two sides. I mean, for Gloucestershire, they are all but relegated now. I don't think they're going to get two convincing innings victories, to be completely honest, in the final two games of the season. And yeah, they, I think it's just a case of acknowledging the the inevitable now for the West Country outfit. But for, for Somerset, though, Somerset, those eight extra points, I mentioned that with Kent, those eight points could be very, very crucial indeed. I think it's, to be honest, about Gloucestershire as well, just to add on to the end, I've been kind of feeling a little bit disappointed on their behalf on a number of occasions over this season because I think they've played well but not got the results. I think that's been kind of a recurring theme, especially against Yorkshire and all the way back in the first game of the season. They, you know, they, they played well enough to get, if not anything else, at least a draw out of that game. And then it's been a recurring theme. And just suddenly that all that kind of goodwill and that feeling of, you know, oh, well, maybe they don't quite deserve to get relegated and, they, you know, they, it's a tough game. I think a decision like this is what gets you relegated. A, a, a match tactics like this 
and the sort of thing that get you relegated, I'm afraid. Yeah, it is a shame. It, it really is a shame. I have a lot of time for Gloucestershire as no. a club. I've made it very clear on the podcast. I do have a soft spot for them, and I, I do wish them the best. Heading into the future, I've always had, again, that, that little bit of a connection with the West Country outfit, but... Yeah, it's just one of those seasons. It's a learning curve, and yeah, Division 2 does beckon, unfortunately, in 2023. But talking of two sides, which should be in Division 1 this season, barring an, an absolute catastrophe in cricketing sense, are Lancashire and Yorkshire. Now, Matt, I'll pass over to you to summarise the events of the Roses matchup at Old Trafford this week as our resident Yorkshireman. What did you make of this particular clash between the Red and the White Rose up in Manchester this week? Happily, yeah. Shall I? Uh, I'll take. I'll take the lead from you, shall I? And I'll. Uh, we'll, so uh, we'll go to Old Trafford. Um, Lancashire won the toss and elected to have a bat. And surprisingly, and you know, given recent uh, recent events, Yorkshire struggled to get either of the openers out. That almost never happens in Roses games, does it? It's not like it's happened every single time we've played them recently. Yeah, Luke Wells, 84, and Keaton Jennings, another centre, 119. I don't know what his average is now, but it must be incredibly high. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure we can come on to the conversation about him. And, yeah, they, they were absolutely flying, 180 partnerships to open things up. And then George Hill happened, and suddenly he took six wickets. And they were bowled out for 276, which I think from where they were, they would have been incredibly disappointed, and Yorkshire would have been much happier especially considering that after Wells and Jennings were two opening pairs, the next highest score was Josh Bohannon with 27. You know, you kind of get in a sense of how much they did kind of fold after that opening partnership, really. And George Hill figures is 6 for 26. He's made in 5 for. You're going to do it. Do it in style and do it against your county's biggest rival. And, you know, that really reined Lancashire back in. Yorkshire then um, got, got an opportunity to have a bat themselves. 255 all out, that gave them a first inning deficit of 21, you know, a very a, a narrow first inning deficit. The game was very much in the balance at that point. Tom Cole Cadmore, um, especially impressive, I thought, with the 51, and that was quite a gritty knock, you know, it comes off 139 balls. That's a solid, you know, James Rue type innings where you're allowing the game to be the innings to be built around you. But there were a couple of, you know, uh, good good contributions as well. Finn Bean as well, who's come onto the scene there you go i'm a poet and i don't even know it he's come onto the scene recently and got himself 40, 40 odd and you know that's that's really good from the opening position and it gives me as a yorks fan quite a bit of confidence because we've needed to find a young player who's you know potentially shown himself to be ready when adam live does finally decide to call it a day we can sign a new contract i'm not saying that's in the offing in the near future at all yet but it will happen one day and we need to be ready for it when it does so, yeah, 255, you've got a first inning deficit of 21. And then the opening pair happen again. They get another 186 partnership between Wells and Jennings. This time it's Wells who gets the century and he does it in style. 124 of 82 deliveries, six sixes included in that. And, you know, that the openers again take the game away. And this time there wasn't any George Hill coming in to save Yorkshire. You know, that's like the second innings might only have lasted 43 overs, but they managed to rack up 280 within it and set Yorkshire a pretty notional uh, target for victory, really, you'd have to say. They ultimately, you know, the rain played its part and Yorkshire were able to battle through 63 overs to get 102 for three. 
uh, with Tom Carla Cadmar again being the unbeaten battling presence, uh, facing 159 balls to ultimately see that handshakes were were taken um, late late on the fourth day. But it was definitely a game dominated by Lancashire. I think you have to say over the course of the season, Lancashire have been the better team. I don't think that's in doubt really. And yeah, if it, I'll be honest, you know, I was happy on day one after George Hill intervened to take his six wicket, you know, still feeling okay with the first innings deficit. And then it was just that crucial, crucial opening partnership in the second innings that just took it away, didn't it? You know, if, if Yorkshire had bowled a little bit better to those two, if those two had not got the runs that they'd got, it could have been a very different story. But ultimately, again, we hung on for the draw. Yeah, and I must say, Matt, I think you've done an excellent job of, of summarising the events up at Old Trafford this week. I might have to coin you as uh, William Shakespeare after those Finn Bean bars. They were quite something, weren't they? I wasn't expecting that on the podcast this week. But you mentioned beforehand Keaton Jennings. Now, we are going to talk about Keaton Jennings because he is one of the main protagonists. If we're looking at that, that wider picture in terms of the England test team, he's the second player in Division 1 this year after Ben Compton to reach a 1,000 runs. He's done it in just nine matches. 1,014 runs in 14 innings, averaging 72.42, and he's hit 400s, including yet another one in this particular Roses match, going 119 in the first innings, which up until that point was his fourth consecutive century in Red Bull crickets against the White Rose of Yorkshire. In terms of that tour of Pakistan, which we alluded to earlier, and given the fact that the likes of Alex Lees and Zach Crawley are struggling up the top of the order, if you were Brendan McCullum and Ben Stokes, would you bite the bullets and bring Keaton Jennings back into the England test fold? Yes, I would. And I think the biggest argument maybe against bringing him back might be, oh, we've tried him before and it's not really worked. Well, there's two massive ways of counteracting that. The first one, is that in fact it has worked in the subcontinent you know he's been taken on tours of india and he's done well out there and we know how well he played spin and you know he could be just what we need for a tour of that part of the world the second argument i think is well we could mccullum and stoke could turn around and say now we're, we're a new era we you know forget what happened in the past he's still playing he's still done given a really good account of himself and we as part of this new era of English cricket, we're going to try him. You know, you essentially forget that anyone else called him up. We're calling him up for the first time and we're going to give him this chance. And this, is, this isn't this is his second chance with England, his second, third chance with England. This is his first chance with us and we're going to try him because he's deserved it. You know, what he's done in the championship this year, he's shown that he deserves it. And clearly, Momentum is a massive, massive part, and it's clearly a massive part of Brendan McCullum's coaching strategy as well. You know, you both within the form of individual player and then within the match situation as well. You know, getting that kind of push behind you has shown you know that that's clearly how McCullum likes to go about things, and he, you know, he he would fit that would fit Keaton Jennings like a glove because of the form he's in and the momentum he's got behind him. So yeah, I think. It could have just come at the right time for Keaton Jennings, you know, a tour of uh, of the um, of South Asia, you know, any any one of those four countries: India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka. Um, a tour of any one of those 
at the end of this season would have worked really well for him and it just so happens that we've got one and I think to be honest yeah I would stick with losing Crawley as the starter but I think you know when you're going on a tour you need to bring back up and why not he's certainly uh, done himself no harm well he certainly hasn't and in terms of that squad he should be in it in my opinion, because it's not just the the sheer volume of runs. I look at Keaton Jennings' technique this season, and Matt, you may or may not agree, but I just look at him, he he looks a lot more compact, he looks a lot more resolute, he looks a lot more confident and assured at the crease in comparison to the Keaton Jennings of old, in particular against seam bowling. So I would take the chance of him, I I really would. I would take the chance, bring Keaton Jennings back into the fold, and he's more than earned his opportunity. The fact is, to get into that England side, they always say you've got to score a volume of runs in county cricket. You've got to have that domestic foundation. He's got that, and he has got f- former test experience as well. So, yeah, I would like to see Keaton Jennings back into the mix for that Pakistan test series. And just one final thing on the Roses match before we get into the tables, and, of course, Division 2. <laughs> well, we have to talk about that evening session on day one. We-, we just have to. George Hill producing the heroics in the most unlikely of circumstances as a Yorkshire fan, Matt, what were your reactions like? I'm guessing wild scenes of celebration, of course, considering the, the fact that at one point Lanks were 180 for none. But what did you make of that evening session? It was an almost biblical collapse from the Red Rose, wasn't it? It was, yeah. I mean, I'll be honest, I was sat in the press box at Trent Bridge at the time watching another biblical collapse, which I'm sure we can uh, get onto in a second. But yeah, I was just the, the, the alerts were just coming through on my phone. I was going, is this, is this happening? Is this and, and then, it, you know, because when, when you first get the alert, it just says, you know, Lancaster versus Yorkshire wicket. And you couldn't quite see without scrolling, without um, opening it up in full, who was actually taking the wicket. So I was thinking, oh, you know, it'll be Code or it'll be Beth or it'll be Thompson or it'll be, you know, somebody established. Oh, no, it was third choice, uh, third third change bowler, who, to be honest, I didn't even know within the team as a, you know, certainly not in the team as a specialist bowler, put it that way. Um, but no, it was. Really, really, really impressive. It's just, and he's, you know, obviously he's won plaudit so far this season for his batting. I mean, in particular, um, he got a hundred and uh, fifty, sixty, seventy, something like that, um, headingly earlier this season, didn't he? Um, you know, that that's why he's in the team as a batter. But anyone that can provide that kind of level of all-round skill is really impressive. And I think. I don't think Lancashire did themselves any favours. I think, you know, they were kind of at that point thinking that, oh, you know, well, it, it might it might take one or two when it comes on. But, and you know, they did. They didn't they didn't seem to be, you know, apprising a of their wickets. It, you know, I don't, I don't think they made George Hill's task too difficult. But at the same time, you know, he's come on he's, he's, and he's, he's done his job. He's been trusted by the skipper and he's done his job. And I think, yeah. For, for him to do that on, you know, what is probably the biggest, certainly the biggest meeting of the season for either of those two counties. You know, yeah, he's uh, he's made Lancashire look like fools in their own backyard and that's what we love to do at Yorkshire. We've got nothing else. There it is. There it is. I've been waiting all podcasts for the Yorkshire bias to finally rear its face and there it was, just in the last sentence of the, the Roses match summary. But yeah, a, a good game, I must say. There's, there's, no, there's no such thing as a boring Roses match is there. It really does deliver the goods every single season, in my opinion, should be sponsored by Amazon Prime, because it always delivers. It's a fantastic occasion, great encounter, and yeah, this match was no different. It's just a shame. It's definitely all or nothing for those involved. 
God, we're on fire today, aren't we, Matt? We really are. 99 chemistry. It's a shame we're not playing FIFA. But yeah, in terms of the game, it's just a shame that the, the weather did ruin it. But other than that, it was a very gripping game of crickets up in the northwest yet again this week. And talking then of these two counties and their positions in the table, let's have a look at the Division 1 table at the end of the 13th round. And for the first time possibly this season, at the top of the Division 1 table, our Hampshire County Cricket Club on 217 points. In second place, with a game in hand over Hampshire, our Surrey on 209 points. In third, our Lancashire on 188 points. In fourth, fifth and sixth respectively, all having played 11 games, therefore having a game in hand over Lancashire. Our Essex, Northamptonshire and Yorkshire on 158, 133 and 129 points respectively. In seventh, our Kent on 115 points. In 8th place, with a game in hand over Kent, are Somerset on 111 points. In ninth, also with a game in hand, and my county of Warwickshire on 104 points. And then in 10th and final place in Division 1, having played 12 matches on 74 points, are Gloucestershire County Cricket Club. So Division 1, it's still all to play for. It really is. And yeah, these final three rounds are going to be quite something, to be honest. Heading into the rest of Super September. Cannot wait to cover it here on the County Cricket Podcast for all of you fellow County Cricket fans. But Matt, aside from Division 1 then, let's go to Division 2. And let's start then at Trent Bridge with the East Midlands Derby because I know you're absolutely champing at the bits to talk about this particular encounter between Nottinghamshire and Leicestershire. Where the Outlaws, the home side, absolutely hammered the Foxes by 241 runs at Trent Bridge. So Matt, considering that you were our man on the ground, literally in the press box at Trent Bridge this week, summarise the game for us. What happened in the East Midlands Derby in Nottingham this week? What happened in the East Midlands Derby? Well, so, and first blood went to Leicestershire, who won the toss and opted to field. It certainly looked like, at first glance, what you might consider to be a ball first wicket. There was certainly a bit of cloud around as well, and there was more than a tinge of green on the pitch. So I could certainly understand the decision to have a ball first. And I think, to be honest, when you consider the strength of Nottinghamshire's batting lineup, Leicestershire can consider it a success. They bowled Nottinghamshire out for 201. Um, Matt Montgomery was the only one to pass 40. He got 43 top score on his maiden first-class appearance at Trent Bridge. And, yeah, for Nottinghamshire to only get one batting bonus point, considering where they are and where Leicestershire are and how the season's gone so far, I think they were considered that disappointing. But then they absolutely struck back, didn't they? You've uh, basically stirred the, stirred the dragon down and you can't expect it not to rear its head back up a little bit. In the evening session, Leicestershire were bowled out for 93 inside 30 overs. It was a pretty astonishing collapse. And Sam Evans, the opener, carried his bat. In fact, faced the first ball and was there right at the very end with a not out 50. No one else got double figures. And the only second highest scorer of the innings was extras with 17. No one else got past nine. And in fact, there were three ducks. And it was a pretty insipid performance from Leicestershire. That 93 all out, it gave them... You know, at one point, they were 33-5. You know, there were aspersions being cast towards 
Leicester's record low score in this fixture, which is 53. Um, you know, that there were people thinking, are they going to be following on here? You know, this is really, really quite wow what's happening here. So it turned out Luke Fletcher, four for 23, Brett Hutton, three for 32, Dan Patterson, two for 25, the wicket shared around that impressive steam bowling attack. And the game was pretty much up for Leicester at that point. Nottinghamshire then drove it home even further after that 20 wicket first day. Lots of half centuries, three half centuries, in fact. Hamid, I think Hamid, 60. Lyndon James, 61. He's developing into an unbelievable player. He's really focusing on, you know, his batting. Uh, he's becoming a batter who can bowl a little bit. Um, he is, I think he's got the skills to be a proper all-rounder, but he is becoming a batter who can bowl a little bit. 61 of 82 is all very fluent. Joe Clark, 67 of 72, also very fluent. You know, the kind of... The, the availability of the runs, the you know the, the chances that Nottinghamshire were given to score runs were far too plentiful from Leicester. I'm afraid you know they were handed runs on a plate, and where in Leicester's first innings only one player reached double figures, everyone got double figures in Nottinghamshire's second innings. Everybody chipped in, and there were you know there weren't really aside from maybe a brief little wobble um, where Montgomery and Clark went in the space of a couple of overs. There weren't what you could consider wickets falling in clumps and Nottinghamshire went on to set 397 um, aided a little bit right at the end by 28 of 17 from Liam Patterson-White who is another uh, academy graduate who's proven himself to be quite handy as an all-rounder and yeah that set Leicestershire a very notional what would have been a team record of 499 to win um, I was a little bit I, I was thinking oh you know couldn't you have just got um, to, you know um, couldn't, couldn't you have just got Brett Hutton out just to score one run and set them exactly 500? I think, you know, could have done that. Anyway, it chose not to. It happened. And then, yes, and Leicestershire was set. Notional uh, 499. They gave a better account of themselves in the second innings. Um, the, the wickets um, weren't as regular, but they were at points regular. Stephen Mullaney really opening things up before lunch on that third day with three wickets. He was bowling some, you know, he doesn't bowl rapid at all, but it's just, it, quite often when he bowls, it looks like he's got the ball on a string. It just The swing that he was extracting and the, the late swing, especially, you know, it was going straight, 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 and then suddenly it dip in. It's really, really impressive, and that kind of shows his incredible experience. And I think the key wicket was Hassan Azad. Um, came round the wicket to Hassan Azad and it straightened up and he pinned him in front. And, you know, we know what he can do in terms of digging in and making it difficult to remove him before lunch was really impressive. And then, yeah, from there, it kind of went downhill. Um, Brett Hutton taking three. There was time late on to make it a little bit dramatic. So with uh, Nottinghamshire needing just one more win, uh, just, just one more wicket to win, uh, there were two drop catches in the final uh, in the final partnership as uh, Michael Finan got 58 of 46 and Callum Parkinson 28 26 of 58. You know their final wicket partnership of 83, which is the biggest Leicestershire partnership um, of any in in the game. You know, you, if, if you're gonna if you're gonna lose, you know, go down fighting in that regard a little bit, I suppose. And Finan certainly did himself no harm. I think he could stay on trial a little bit at Leicestershire. You know, they still having a look at him essentially and uh, deciding whether they want him to be a long-term part of their team. I think to be honest, yeah, he did no, no harm there. There was a rain delay after tea 
which definitely made things a bit interesting as to whether or not it'd be finished inside three days. The teams returned to the field after two hours at six o'clock dawn, and that was the absolute latest that play could have resumed in order for it to resume on that day at all. Ten balls later, fine and nicked off to Montgomery at slip, and that was the game right there. Nottinghamshire winning by 241 runs to extend the lead right at the top of the table. Yeah, lots of uh, really, really good performances from Nottingham, I would say, and I'll, uh, I'll leave it up to you as to which ones you want to delve into a little bit deeper. Well, to be honest, Matt, I'm not going to delve massively deep into Nottinghamshire this week because, again, we've done it all throughout the season. They're an outstanding team, top of the Division 2 table for a reason, all but secured promotion. Let's face it, at this, this moment in time, pretty much secured the trophy as well. But one player in particular, I did just want to give some, some due credit to because I messaged him at the end of day one, and that is Dane Patterson, the great Dane, as he's known at Trent Bridge, because on day one, he took his 100th wicket in a Nottinghamshire shirt, which is an incredibly impressive achievement for someone who's played so little games at the club. In terms of his importance to that Notts outfit, I'm not just talking about this season, Matt, but heading into next season as well. Just how important of a role does Dane Patterson actually play? Because we talk a lot about Luke Fletcher. We talk a lot about this season, in particular, Jimmy Pattinson in terms of playing that enforcer role. Brett Hutton has come on leaps and bounds as well in a not shirt this season. But in terms of Dane Patterson, usually goes under the radar, but always gets wickets, doesn't he? He's a really quite useful character to have in that Nottinghamshire seam attack. He really is. And I think his character is massively important as well. You know, they, they, they complement each other very well out on the field, but they also complement each other very well as a unit. And, you know, in the dressing room, he's, I know he's absolutely loved. Um, Patterson is an extrovert. He's really, really a really likable person. And he's really, you know, friendly. And I think, to be honest, that kind of what knits him with Luke Fletcher really well, because Fletcher is similar, you know, he's, very, you know, Stuart Broad described him as one of life's energy givers. I would apply that same title to Patterson as well, definitely. And yeah, his his skill and his I think the respect, you, you know, you know, you they they like him so much because of his character and because of his you know willingness to have a bit of fun and be and kind of be that energy giver in the dressing room. But also they respect him because of what he shows out on the field. And you know, he'll he'll bowl those hard yards. He comes on. He's he's not. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't get the new ball. He doesn't get kind of that glamour of being the one to open the bowling. He comes on his first change. But, he, you know, he, he bowls those really tough overs. Sometimes if there's a bit of a wind whipping through, he's going to be the one that has to, you know, run into the wind. And he sets things up so well. He, he, he plans things out because he's not the quickest. But I think he's... It's kind of release. He's got a very, very smooth release, so it's not particularly um, energy sapping, which means he can carry on bowling those, uh, bowling those tough overs. But he seems to plan out his, his his overs very well. Like we've seen this on quite a number of occasions. He'll bowl, you know, he'll greet you with a couple of outswingers, and you know, you you either play at those and mix them all, you know, leave them and think, okay, this guy's bowling outswingers, let's just keep on him. And then with the fourth or fifth ball of an over, you'll get an in-swinger and that's it. You'll be bowled or you'll be pinned LBW. And that's, you know, we've seen that on a number of occasions, both this season and last. But yeah, he has slotted into that attack so well, both on the field and off the field. And I know that he's a really, really well-liked 
member of that team. And to be honest, it's been really, really great to see him doing so well. It has indeed, Matt. I think you've articulated that quite beautifully, to be honest. And yeah, just shout out to Dane. Great character. I did say, actually, as well, if he took if he took another wicket in the game, which he did, I think he actually took the winning wicket of Michael Finan, if I'm not mistaken. He did. He did. Then I would give him a shout out on the podcast. So there you go, Dane. I hope you're tuning in. Deserved, bro. Deserved. Absolutely lecker performance from the South African at Trent Bridge this week. But talking of Michael Finan, Matt... Before we go on to the Worcestershire versus Glamorgan game in Cardiff, it was unexpected, but I must say I thoroughly enjoyed it. And shout out as well to Flowery Field Cricket Club, who found my tweet of Michael Finan, retweeted it, and it got a load of likes. So big up to Flowery Field up in Hyde, which I I believe is where Michael Finan may have plied his trade. But that particular knock from a number 11, right, just to put this into some context, let's give the stats and the the background behind it. 11 fours. And 1-6, striking at 126.08. And just looking at the scorecard, that alone is incredibly impressive. But it was the manner of scoring shots that he possesses which really impressed me. It was the constant short ball barrage from Brett Hutton that he was dispatching time and time and time and time again. The confidence to play that shot from number 11 against Brett Hutton, who had done very well in this game, the confidence, the rhythm was up. I was tremendously impressed with Michael Finan this week. And on first-class debut as well, to score a 50, also took his maiden first-class wicket. In fact, he took a couple, didn't he, in that Nottinghamshire second innings. Definitely a week to remember for Michael Finan for the running Foxes. So delighted for him, delighted for his teammates or his former teammates up at Flowery Field CC, I should say. And yeah, just a a feel-good story on what was otherwise a very, very disappointing week yet again for Leicestershire County Cricket Club in the 2022 County Championship. But talking of a team which, on the opposite side, has had quite a good tournament in 2022, let's now head to Cardiff, where unfortunately the weather did play spoil sport this week at Sophia Gardens, but Glamorgan and Worcestershire did still play out quite the draw on Welsh soil this week. Now, in terms of the background of this, Worcestershire won the toss, elected to have a bat first in this particular game, which appeared to have backfired ever so slightly, as the pairs were restricted to a somewhat dicey score of 69 for three within the first 21 overs of their innings. But after this shaky beginning, the rest of this first innings in Cardiff well and truly belonged to the visitors. And the source of this, the catalyst, came from a rather unlikely source. And Matt, we've got to give this guy a tremendous amount of plaudits. But Gareth Roderick, 172 not out, from 348 balls, scored 22 boundaries. How would you describe that performance in terms of both the individual brilliance on display, I suppose, in terms of the shots that Gareth Roderick was playing, in particular the sweep shots, I thought were absolutely delectable. But in terms of the wider context as well of the game, Worcestershire did not get off to a great start at all in this game. They really didn't. It was a very shaky start. And yet when Roderick came to the crease... He brought this assurance, this calmness, this composure to the crease and completely halted Glamorgan's momentum. It was a massive knock in this particular encounter, wasn't it, from the former Gloucestershire wicketkeeper batter? It was, yeah. And I'd, to be honest, if I was going to use one word, I'd, I'd describe it as resilient. Um, mm. I think the reason being, obviously, resilient in the sense that, like you say, it halted Gloucestershire's uh, Glamorgan's momentum and it made 
it gave Worcestershire a route back into a game that in previously they'd, they'd been struggling in. But also because he himself, you know, Roderick, he's clearly talented, but he hasn't quite shown that this season. He's, you know, struggled a little bit this season. So for him to, you know, at this point, make that statement and say, you know, you haven't forgotten about me, have you? You know, I'm, I'm still here. I'm still scoring. You know, I'm, I've still got this ability to score runs was really, really important and impressive. And yeah, it got Worcestershire to um, what was in the end a really quite impressive score. Um, it allowed Ed Barnard, who, you know, mate, you're getting one hell of a player to watch your next season. You really are. Uh, we'll see what division they'll be playing in, but, you know, you're really getting a player. And, you know, he's um, Roderick to bat there for, for so long and be, you know, kind of the, that constant presence allowed Barnard to score, you know, he got 75 off 117, that's free-flowing and fluent, and it just allowed him to play his natural game, and, of course, Roderick kept the plaudits, you know, they never man they never managed to dislodge him, um, they declared, um, with Roderick still unbeaten on 172, it was really, really important for him on a personal level and for Worcestershire in the context of this game, definitely. 100% Matt, and the reason I said it was slightly surprising, I suppose, because this season, unfortunately, Gareth has struggled. In his first four games for Worcestershire this season, he'd scored 173 runs at a pretty low average, if my memory does serve me correctly, but that was a brilliant knock. It really was, and he deserves an immense amount of plaudits, immense amount of credits, and someone else who you mentioned there, he is moving to my county of Warwickshire, but Ed Barnard, Goodness me, this boy is talented, isn't he? With a capital T. In terms of this year's county championship, in 11 matches, he scored 855 runs. He is Worcestershire's leading run scorer at an average of 65.76. So Ed Barnard, not just a, a potent weapon with the ball in hand, but with the bats, he is a bona fide all-rounder, to say the very least. So Warwickshire fans get excited. I know I certainly am. And yet again in Cardiff this week, Ed Barnard showing his metal and his batting prowess in some style. As in fairness, was former captain Joe Leach scoring 87. And it was a fantastic 87 as well. Might I just add just the 16 boundaries from the former Worcestershire captain. And he's, he's that kind of character, isn't he, Matt? In terms of the way that Joe Leach, he, he seems to adapt and apply himself very well in pressure situations. Always has a big knock in him or alternatively he does get out rather cheaply but that was a fantastic knock I must say from the Worcestershire all-rounder this week but aside from the the pairs then Matt let's have a look at Glamorgan now unfortunately the weather did play spoil sports so Glamorgan didn't really get the opportunity to have two full innings they got 295 runs in their first innings and yeah five for none in the second <laughs> the rain allowing just 1.3 overs in the second innings but we have to talk about a particular debutant from the country of India, and that is, of course, Shubman Gill. 92 from 148 balls, which included eight boundaries and a six. And boy, oh boy, is this boy very pleasing on the eye. That straight drive that Shubman Gill possesses is a thing of natural beauty. It deserves to be protected with heritage status. It really does. The way in which that ball just crisply nestles against the boundary rope every single time he places it so majestically down the track. How impressive was that knock from the Indian opener on debut for Glamorgan? And I suppose in terms of the wide context heading into the promotion battle, how important will his contributions be 
to the Welsh outfits as they push for that second place. Very, very important. And I think, you know, you, you have to, if, if you've been brought in, you expect to, to perform straight away. You've got that pressure, possibly a little bit more than your teammate. You know, you certainly if you're being paid a bit more than they are, you've been brought in to do a job and you've got to do it right from the off. Uh, but, you know, he definitely did that. I think it was really, really unfortunate that he was out for 92. I think you have to say, based on how well he played, he probably deserved 100. But, you know, it's I suppose it's a kind of really solid introduction to county cricket. And then at the same time, it's a kind of baptism of fire in the sense that, you know, you know what, mate, you, you might be able to get to 92, but you're not always going to have it your own way. So he will learn from that and he'll get an experience of English conditions. But yeah, to score 92 on debut, it's, just, it's exactly what Glamorgan will have been looking for. And like you say, the wider context of the promotion race, maybe we're saying that there is only one more up for grabs. You know, I'm not saying anything until it's confirmed, but if, if we are to assume that there's only one more up for grabs, then it's going to be between Glamorgan and Middlesex. It's exactly what Glamorgan needed, isn't it? Just this player that will come in and be that difference. And, you know, ultimately considering to play each other next week, if he can be the difference again, then, yeah, he will have a massive impact on their season. Absolutely. And a really good week, I must say, for Glamorgan. Obviously, it's a shame that this game was all but washed out, unfortunately, due to the weather in South Wales. But retaining Marnus Labashane for the next two seasons, they are now seven points above Middlesex. They've both played the same number of games. So it is advantage Glamorgan in terms of that second promotion spot. And again, to have Shubman Gill come in, and just adapt so so flawlessly on debut. Things are looking very good for the promotion push for the Welsh County. But just one final thing from that game, and this is from a Worcestershire perspective this time, I just had to give a bit of a shout-out to a, a, a favourite former guest of mine, Okay, Ben Gibbon, really nice fella, formerly of Cheshire in the National Counties. He took career-best figures this week. Unfortunately, he couldn't get the fifth wicket, but did produce career-best figures of 4 for 87, from his 22 overs so shout out to ben lovely fella really good attitude hard worker good grafter and i thought he bowled very nicely at sapphire gardens this week so that's just one final shout out from that particular game but matt without further ado then let's head to the seventh and final encounter of the county championship for the 13th round this year and let's go to the Encora ground in derby where Derbyshire and Durham played out a rain-affected draw in the East Midlands. Now, in terms of this particular game, Durham won the toss, elected to have a bowl first, and again, this decision seemed to have paid off quite nicely, the Northeastern County restricting the home side to 58 for four within the first 19 overs of their innings. But cometh the hour, cometh the men. And for Derbyshire this week, that was Laius Deploy and Harry Kane, who scored 82 and 78 respectively, on their way to producing a vital 143-run partnership for the fifth wicket, which ultimately helped propel the East Midlands side up to a score of 306 all-out by the end of their innings. And Matt, this has been the episode of puns, so apologies in advance for this. But I suppose on this particular occasion, you could say that Harry came, Harry saw, Harry conquered in the East Midlands this week. It was too good an opportunity to pass. Don't, don't face palm at me, Mr Wiley. Not after your Finley Bean bars early. I'm not having that, Mr. Shakespeare. But uh, yeah, very, very happy for Harry Kane. Again, good attitude, good individual. Happy to see him doing well. Now, in response to this, unfortunately, Durham didn't bat too well. Bowled out for 223 runs within just 79 overs. 
which aside from Michael Jones's 87, which was a fantastic knock, might I just add, seemed a little bit bereft of, of resilience. It seemed as though Derbyshire's bowlers were just too good for their northeastern counterparts this week. But the real big takeaway from that particular innings was a moment on day two, which is where Nick Maddinson's bats was taken away by the umpires and didn't fit through the bat gauge. Now, this has been a massive topic of conversation and debate, and we still don't know what's happening. To be completely honest, there hasn't been a statement from the ECB with regards to a potential points deduction or whether the bats was legal and it was just due to the damp weather conditions. But it was a bizarre moment, wasn't it, Matt? What did you make of it um, in terms of that particular moment at the Encora this week? Well, it's almost something that you never really expect to happen, do you? It's, I know it's you know it's one of those sort of slightly stranger rules that you just, oh, well, bats are manufactured and players don't really give it too much thought, do they? And I know, obviously, you have players like different styles of bat, of course they do. But, you know, you, you just trust the manufacturers, don't you, to produce the bat that's within the regulations. And I think, to be fair, it's actually, I don't know who spotted it first. I don't know whether it was one of the umpires. I don't know whether the Derbyshire fielder spotted it a little bit and just said, can you have a look at that? Or I'm not, I'm not entirely sure how it transpired. But for the umpires to act upon it, you know, for the umpires to think, oh, yeah, there actually there might be something here. I think that shows a lot of really quite impressive, you know, observation on the part of the umpire to know from, you know, from experience, really, or to just know without looking, or to know looking at it just with the naked eye that it's, you know, there might be something wrong here considering, you know, we're talking about fractions of, you know, centimetres, fractions of inches. It's, yeah, quite impressive, really. But at the same time, very, very disappointing for... For Madison, whether he, whether it was intentional, whether it was accidental, whether he knew about it or not, it's you know it's it's really disappointing. It's disappointing for Durham, um, and I think really my first thought is that you know if you, if you're going to dock points, sixteen feels very harsh for what could be a simple oversight. You know, you might just be talking. I don't know, maybe maybe knock the bonus points off that he's helped them get at one occasion or something like that or you know maybe I don't know just 16 you know an entire win feels very very harsh it really does um but ultimately what it does prove is that you know equipment has to be checked and you know rules are there the rules do exist you know you, you can't just say oh we'll just let him get away with it this one time because it's such a precedent you know the, the rules are there and the rules have to be enforced so yeah, it's a it's it's a it's a weird one. It's a, you feel a little bit sorry for Maddington almost on the assumption that he didn't know anything about it. Um, and yeah, I mean, ultimately it didn't really make much difference, did it? Because he only got eight. So you know, if he'd gone on to get two hundred and eight, then maybe they might have a point. But you think he? It's just the thought of thing that makes you go, really? I don't know. Yeah, I've got a soft spot for Durham. Maybe that's influencing it a little bit. But yeah, it's a, definitely a strange one for sure. Yeah, it was bizarre. Again, I, I go back to that word. I think that's how I'd describe it this this week. And it's not the first time we've seen it happen this season. Funnily enough, it was Derbyshire who got docked two points, wasn't it, for Matty McKinnon's bat being too big. So again, we await an update on that. If there's any Durham fans who can let us know, please feel free to do so at the County Cricket 2 on Twitter or the County Cricket Podcast on Instagram. Again, we'd love to know your thoughts on the whole situation, to be honest. And it's funny you mentioned, actually, um, who observed it in the first place. I believe it was Hassan Adnan, the umpire. And I think Madison was only on one 
again, I'm thinking back to the live stream. I'm pretty sure Maddinson was on one. He must have spotted something and, yeah, utilised his initiative. So fair play to Hassan Adnan. Spotted it pretty early, quite, uh, quite apparently. But in terms of the rest of the game, unfortunately, the weather in the East Midlands did affect it somewhat. Derbyshire did reach 214 for nine declared in their second innings to set Durham somewhat of a target of 298 runs. But unfortunately, only 53 overs of play were allotted and Durham reached 176 for five to ultimately secure the draw at the Encora ground. So, Matt, there's not much more really to add from this particular game this week. It's a shame about the weather because I must say it was very, very watchable and very entertaining. And actually, I say there's nothing else to add. In Derbyshire's second innings, I have to give a shout out to Ben Rain taking 5 for 43 from 22 overs. I thought he was exceptional. Again, someone who goes very much under the radar, but very much is the breakthrough specialist for Durham, in my personal opinion. So shout out to Ben Rain as well. Not a shout out to The Rain, which ruined this particular encounter, but Ben Rain was absolutely sensational, to say the very least. Right then, Mats, I suppose that is a perfect place then to look at the Division 2 tables then at the end of the 13th round. And to be honest, Derbyshire fans actually are going to be pretty happy with where their county are, as you'll see in just a second. But at the top of the Division 2 table at the end of the 13th round are Nottinghamshire County Cricket Club on 215 points. In second place, with a game in hand, Ogla Morgan on 172 points. In third, a Derbyshire County Cricket Club on 169 points. And may I just say, full credit, to Mickey Arthur, full credit to the likes of Billy Goldman. Wayne Madsen's had a fantastic season as well. That young seam attack have been brilliant for the East Midlands County. I'm really happy to see Derbyshire in third place, even though they have got the extra game played. That is a very promising sign for the East Midlands County heading into the future. Then in fourth place are the Saxes of Middlesex on 165 points with a game in hand over the likes of Derbyshire and Nottinghamshire. In fifth, and sixth place, respectively, are Worcestershire and Durham on 144 and 137 points. In seventh place are Sussex on 105 points. And in eighth and bottom place of Division 2 at the end of the 13th round are Leicestershire County Cricket Club on 75 points. So in terms of the promotion race, very much the same as Division 1. It is well and truly on. I think that Nottinghamshire have all but secured the win and the trophy. I think they will be competing in Division 1 in the 2023 season. But as for that second place, you've got Middlesex, you've got Glamorgan, potential outsiders in Derbyshire. You never know if they were to win those final two games. Mickey Arthur, he is the, the master, he's the engineer of the incredible. So we shall have to wait and see what happens. But Division 2 looking very, very promising indeed. But Matt, I mean, that is essentially it for today's episode of the Counter Cricket Podcast. Um, in terms of how we usually end, listeners we do usually end on quite a happy note but unfortunately this week given what's happened in our country the UK we do have to end on a rather somber note and that is with the passing of our head of state Queen Elizabeth II who to a lot of people obviously an icon will be greatly missed and of course our thoughts and and prayers here at the Counter Cricket Podcast are going out to every single one of you who is mourning the loss of our monarch at these tremendously difficult times and in terms of one other, I suppose, quite quite touching way to end the podcast, I, I did also have a little bit of a tribute to someone quite special this week. And I've got to be honest, 
I didn't expect to ever be doing this on the podcast, and it's very painful. So, Matt's um, apologies in advance for this. If I do break down a little bit, so I'm not usually good in situations like this. But unfortunately, this week um, we lost a very special member of the cricket community in the form of Luke Swan. Um, now, Luke was a former guest here on the podcast, appeared on episode 69, Northamptonshire's EPP coach, um, a, a titanic figure at Shifnal Cricket Club. And again, a very inspirational figure to a lot of people, given his journey into the game. Now, I didn't know Luke for ages, but what I will say is that in the very short time that I knew Luke, he has left quite the impact and quite the imprint on me as both a cricket fan and as a person. And I just think back to to one particular moment last year, and it was day four of the Warwickshire Somerset game. And this is a, a testament to the kind of character and the kind of bloke that Luke was. When I got home, obviously I was absolutely delighted. I was ecstatic, right? I was in tears actually, because Warwickshire had lifted the championship. I never thought it'd happen. But he was one of three people to message me on that night. And he said, I'm absolutely delighted for you, mate. And it's only a little thing like that, but that really has left its mark on me. And he always had time for me, whether that was talking about crickets and my incessant Warwickshire bias, always had time for a conversation about the Bears or North Anson's, also about wider life in general. So I just had to say to his friends, his family, everyone at Shifnal, everyone at Northamptonshire, that he will be greatly missed. I will miss him. I know that a lot of people out there will be incredibly upset and saddened by the passing of, of Luke or Swanee, as he's affectionately known. And I just wanted to say again that our thoughts and prayers here at the County Cricket Podcast are with Luke's family heading in to the coming weeks and coming months. And of course, if you do need us for anything, please do feel free to get in contact with us via the Counter Cricket Podcast on Instagram or indeed via at the Counter Cricket 2 on Twitter. But that is it from us here at the Counter Cricket Podcast for this week's episode. To each and every single one of you wonderful listeners, thank you very much for tuning in. As always, guys, we'll see you on the next one.